Welcome to Europarama, the border-breaking podcast about science fiction and the future of Europe, brought to you by Our Europe. I'm Giuseppe Porcaro. I'm Alberto Cottica. And for this season, Europarama joins forces with Edge Riders and their science fiction economic lab as they had an incredible idea. Instead of writing academic papers, they decided to channel out-of-the-box economic thinking around building the fictional world of Witness. In each episode, we explore a part of this universe as it's being created, and you will learn more about how you can also contribute to its making, as this is an open-source world that everyone can use. For those who may have joined the podcast only now, Witness is a fictional city floating in a post-climate change planet Earth, where people are organized by districts, each experimenting a different social contract and a different economic model. But all of them are connected by being constrained in that floating space. And today we will travel with Alberto to the Covenant, also known as District 3, the religious center of the city. Alberto, tell us a little bit more about the Covenant. For us who are those lost travelers in Witness and we are just arriving in this district. The Covenant used to be a district in the sense of an administrative division, but then its first elected leader, who was herself a Roman Catholic, decided to pass a law encouraging and protective of religious freedom. And as a result, a lot of the religious institutions of Witness as a whole decided to relocate to this district. That ended up being the religious center of the city as a whole. I'm an economist and witnesses, after all, a project of the science fiction economics lab. A really interesting bit of all this is that this district of the Covenant is an excuse to explore how a full-fledged economy would work if it was based on monasteries rather than firms. So, how this economy would work? This starts from a long-term fascination that I have had for the Benedictine movement. It used to be that monks were hermits. So the first wave of monks, Saint Anthony was a leading figure. We are talking about the 6th century, more or less. They were people who escaped the decay of the metropolis, of Rome in particular, but at that time, in a vast state of decay, the empire was falling, to commune with God in the solitude of nature. But then what happened is that most of these people went mad because they would find themselves in the divine presence and only the divine presence 24 hours a day, that's like advanced monasticism. And so the innovation in the coming centuries, and their Benedict was the leading figure, we do this in communities and we help each other stay sane. Benedict's own innovation was to introduce work as a way to commune with God while staying sane in the community. And that was a very elegant move because we already had communities, so monasteries where monks would gather together and they would worship God as a community. But now with work, the monks would strike three targets with one shot. Target number one, it was a form of devotion. You offer your work to God. Target number two, you make your community more sustainable. You build better monasteries, for example. You can grow some agricultural produce that you can eat. You can use it for your devotion. You grow the wheat to make the bread to celebrate mass but also the wheat to make bread to eat. But also that. Sustainable both spiritually and materially. Correct. So essentially, you would have a very elegant move because by dedicating work to God, the monks were able to celebrate their devotion while at the same time strengthening the community and at the same time becoming an economic unit of production. And then what happened over the centuries was that monasteries became very successful as an institution, culturally, but also economically. Culturally, they covered the whole of Europe by, let's 
say, the 13th century. You had them everywhere, from the humble beginnings of Benedict in Monte Cassino. You had from Ireland to Poland and from Portugal to Sweden. They had become the tip of the spear of the Holy Roman Empire. Economically, they were prospering. The most interesting economic example might have been that of the famous monastery of Cluny, which at the peak of its activity was serving 10,000 hot meals a day to the poor. So that is like substantial logistic effort, even for a modern company. And they were doing it a thousand years ago. Even now, monasteries do not lack for anything. I interviewed a Benedictine abbot. As an economist, I was asking him a lot about what is this and how do you work as an economic unit. And of course, they work hard because... They are offering the work to God. Why wouldn't you work hard? Yeah, absolutely. One clear example is of the sustainability of such a model is the fact that still today, as you say, there are successful communities which not only thrive spiritually, but also economically, they have substantial activity. I'm based in Brussels and you're based in Brussels. We know very well about the Trappist beer, for example. Some of them are still based on production, which is related to the monastery kind of community, correct? Correct. And not only that, but even the choice of the activity that the monasteries make is also kind of interesting. I have a data point that connects to your Trappist example, which is that this Benedictine superior that I interviewed years ago, this was an American monk based in Italy, and at one point uh, he was starting this new monastery, and they said, okay, what do we do to make the monastery sustainable? And uh, this was in Umbria, in the center of Italy, the core of the country, where, of course, the production of wine is widespread. And so the monks made beer. Their argument was, we don't want to compete with the locals. We want to make a product that will be welcome in our community, will not make us the sort of people from outside that come and displace local business. Problem was, nobody had any idea of how to make beer, so they dispatched Brother Paul to Belgium, and they told him to come back a master brewer. And that's what he did. So now they're making beer in kind of Trappist beer, I have to imagine, even though they're not Trappist monks, but regular Benedictine monks in Umbria. To a certain extent, also a very sustainable economic system, a very decentralized economic system, because you mentioned that each of the monasteries is somehow independent, if I'm correct. There is not a hierarchical structure within the different monasteries. And that's another element which reminds me of witness and what you are experimenting in that world building exercise. And then thirdly, perhaps you can say a bit more about that. I think it's interesting because it blends elements of traditional proto-capitalism to a certain extent and elements that are completely outside the logic of the homo economicus. How exactly you analyze these features and then how those features were blended into the covenant so that we can get more into the actual district. That's correct. When you look at a monastery and how it works as an economic unit, you are led very far away from the idea of home economicus. Let's summarize it. The, the home economicus is a computer, is a perfectly rational maximizer. The idea of the production units of the individual worker is that the worker prefers to rest, leisure, but he will sell some of his time for money. And he will balance leisure against time, against the income, and then the labor will be bought by an enterprise, a firm, that then will put it into a production function and output some kind of product that then they can sell. What is the goal of the firm? To maximize its profit. So it's all home economics all the way down. The worker is maximizing their own well-being as a mix of leisure and income, and the company is maximizing profit. If you take away the worker and you replace the worker by the monk, it's a completely different 
suspicion that gets into play. So why is the monk in a monastery? And being in a monastery is really hard. So the guys that I talk to, they get up at 3.30 in the morning. They work like dogs until bedtime. And by work, I also mean the devotional work, which is for them the most important part of the day. This is their prize, you know, at four in the morning that they chant the morning rituals and then they have a mass every day and then they have a confessor in the monastery, etc. This is the reward. This is the objective. As part of that, they also produce. They produce like praying. So the Benedictine motto is or at labora. So it's work and pray, and it's really kind of two sides of the same coin. There's no maximization here. There is just a communion with God, and one of the activities, not the most important, but a very important one of communing with God, consists in working. What happens is that work is not a necessary evil for the monk, the way it is for, let's say, home economicus laborer. It's something that the monk wants to do, and he wants to do it well. So there is this monastery, it's the same one actually I was mentioning before, in central Italy. They have a little shop in which they sell their own products. So local farmers come over and say, brothers, it's a very nice little shop you have, would you also sell my products? And they say yes, because they want to be nice neighbors to these people that live around them. But then after some months, the monks ask to talk to the superior and they are troubled. They are spiritually troubled. And they say, Father, this honey is not good. The quality is not good. We are selling in our shop honey, which is made without love. It is not being dedicated to God. It is made for profit and made badly. And we are troubled. And the superior decided, all right, we won't do this anymore. We won't sell anything that we don't make ourselves. If you look at the monastery as a profit-maximizing firm, this is the wrong move. Why would they do it? They had the shop anyway. This was an extra stream of income. They had to do very little for it. It made sense, but spiritually it didn't make sense. There is another similar anecdote this time from America, from a monastery in New Mexico that hit, this is like in the 90s, upon making websites. Some monk persuaded the local superior, you know, this is a good way that we can do it. It will sustain the community and we can dedicate it to God. Maybe they started from religious websites, I don't know. But then the dot-com boom came and there was so much demand. So the monastery was going really well as a company. But of course, this was taking a toll. And in the end, uh, it was going into spiritual trouble. Result, the superior said... We are not making websites anymore. We are moving into growing mushrooms. I wonder what kind of mushrooms they were cultivating. This is a very successful way of organizing production that nevertheless is the farthest thing you can imagine from capitalist companies. What happens in witness? What happens in the covenant? We try to imagine how it would work. First of all, we can imagine that the covenant would be really good at manufacturing. Why? Well, of course, monks are good at manufacturing. This is an observation that is historically true. But also, monasteries are very good at long-term thinking. They are not constrained by our you know, quarterly returns on investment because they think in millennia. You can imagine monks sitting down and imagining new things to build for the glory of God. And some of these new things will be really crazy stuff that no reasonable capitalist firm would ever build. For example, we have a sub-district called Viriditas, where we imagine in the covenant that there is another order of monks that is building a slower-than-light interstellar colonization ships, which will take about 400 years to build, the monks estimate. They can do that because when you think about it, the monks are the best people people suited to do slower than light interstellar travel because monks have a vow of stability. They never leave the monastery. You can make the starship into a monastery and you're basically cool. As a result of this, you have this really advanced manufacturing that is going on in the Covenant. But remember, 
monks produce for spiritual well-being, which means when they hit on something which is a huge commercial success, they will refuse to increase supply in response to demand. This is actually a very interesting point because when they hit success, they refuse to get more production in order to meet the demand. But this makes their goods also more rare and more precious and more valuable in the market. If from one point of view, it's somehow not really following the rules of the market. From the other view, it's a very smart way uh, in a very capitalist mindset for creating more value out of your own products because they are more rare and more scarce. But they don't do that because this is explicitly forbidden by the rule. Benedict's rule says you should price fairly. Meaning that they cannot change the prices. They can change the prices, but they have to price fairly. This is an absolute imperative. I mean, St. Benedict was thinking about economics and he has a pricing rule in the rule. That is amazing. If you think about that, this guy has been writing the rule in 600 after Christ. Yes. It's something that is very advanced economic thinking. Part of religious thinking is economic thinking. Greed is a sin because it damages society. Benedict doesn't want that. In the covenant. What happens when you, just like you said, there are these fantastic goods and services maybe, and then people want them, but the monks refuse to make more. Answer, there will be knockoffs. So we imagine that in the covenant, you actually don't have that many monasteries. The monasteries are the backbone of the economy, but each of them is surrounded by a bunch of capitalist companies that imitate and cater to the bigger market with knockoffs of a true monastic goods, an exploitation mechanism, if you like. We imagine that these companies would have a very aggressive hiring policy, trying to target the lay brothers and sisters that spend some time in the monasteries, and they immediately promote it to senior managerial positions and all kinds of stuff. The question that you ask is exactly the kind of question that we ask ourselves every day when we work on witness. So wait a minute, wouldn't this drive the prices very high? Okay, but the rule forbids it. So you have a scarcity problem to solve. You have a good that people want, but you don't have production. You can't scale up production. So what happens when you have to imagine a credible way that that fictional economy would nevertheless be credible? It's fictional, but it's credible. And we imagine Shenzhen. The Covenant plays the role of Shenzhen, the workshop of witness where most manufacturing gets done, with the monks as the hardcore of high-quality, long-term thinking, super-advanced projects and products, and then a cloud of capitalist firms that exploit know-how and reverse-engineer and imitate. In your world building so far, do you have any kind of conflictual relation between the monks and these capitalist firms that somehow live on the back of their creations? Is there any conflict in District 3? No, we have not imagined the conflict. And I was trying to imagine what the monks that I have talked to over the years would say. And they would probably say, actually, these guys are solving the problem for us. We don't want people knocking on our door to make more hovercrafts because we make three amounts in this monastery, they are good, we offer them to God, they keep us occupied. If we had to make six, it would be a stress. It would mean that monks would start to miss on functions, not good. So we just keep on churning three and let them reverse engineer it and sell it to the benighted people out there that care about this stuff. All we need to do is to maintain our monastery fed and water. That's it. 
it's a very interesting dynamic because to a certain extent they're very much concerned about the community but somehow they also have a limited scope in intervening in the affairs of the world. They contribute to technological advancement, manufacturing, they do this with a spiritual engagement but their engagement only lasts until their own capacity but they are not engaged in a political struggle to say because of our ethics we want the rest of the world to be like us they are not doing that they are not imposing anything no to be a monk means that you get to separate yourself from the world from the secular world that's your benefit you leave them outside the monastery gates certainly you don't want them to be like you you do want to maintain good relationships and then there is one case in which you would intervene which is if you think you're doing god's work in doing that so when cluny decided that it was worth it to try and feed the hungry people around their walls they were still doing it for themselves no by doing this we commune with god become better christians but that didn't mean that they were trying to convert others necessarily and by the way during the middle ages i think there must have been period where the monasteries were the beacons of technology and advancement there are abbeys here in belgium that are amazing like hydraulic works that must have been the absolute tip of the spear of the technology of the time you would go and gawk and marvel and then they did it because it supported the community in what it needed to do and it's very important to note that the production in monasteries in the Benedictine movement originates with the liturgy so they started growing wheat to make the bread to celebrate mass what do you need for a mass you need bread so you need to grow wheat and you need a mill and then you also need wine so you need a vineyard and then you need something to treat barrels for example so you need to make the barrels you need a book which means you need to have sheep and scrape their vellum and make manuscripts and so on and so forth you need a house like the house of god needs to be pretty you need masonry and all of the economic activity were initially directed at the liturgy they only touch money insofar as it's directed to the religious life Coming back to district 3, the monks are not the only kind of religious institution which is represented over there. Being the religious center of the city, you might have imagined other structures, other confessions which are getting together. How this is exactly combined in your economic scheme? Correct. In the covenant, we imagined that other religious institutions that are not necessarily Benedictine monasteries would also relocate. One of these is the Institute for the Works of Religion that actually exists in our world. Italians know it well because it was a center of a major scandal back in the 80s. And this is a kind of early bank of God. So it is, it is a financial institute governed by a board which is appointed by the Vatican and so on and so forth. The Institute for the Works of Religion relocates to the covenant in witness, they find themselves in a jurisdiction where as a religious institution they are very free. We imagine that they engage in substantial financial innovation. We don't know yet what this innovation exactly will be and we hope to find out as, as more financial economists get involved. We imagine that there would be here a swarm of artificially intelligent brokers that trading with each other and doing something similar to Economics 2.0 in Charlie Strauss Accelerando books which is basically an economy without humans where you have software agents selling to software agents selling to software agents almost no need for any human activity efficiency is super high and also profits are very high but the human substrate is hardly touched at all and then we also imagine that there would be a religious 
footprint on education. That in the Catholic Church is the province of the Jesuit order. And we imagine that the Neo-Jesuit order on witness there are several higher education institutions. We call them collegia. There's a lot of Latin in the covenant because it feels sort of mysterious and cool. We are not talking about mass education here. We are talking about higher education institutions, elite. The idea is, like in the real world, to educate the future elite in the ways of God. But then again, we have the dual economy in the covenant with the core of religious institutions and the corona of lay institutions that live off somehow or try to exploit the results of the religious ones. So graduates of the college are quickly hired into senior research and teaching positions by larger universities lay universities in this case, both in the Covenant and in other districts, but they maintain strong networks. And again, Italians, especially in Lombardia, we know there is a, a strong economic networking by Catholic entrepreneurs that like to work with each other. This makes for a very cohesive economic system with some antitrust implications, which we'll probably encounter at some point here in Covenant. But so that's how they roll. So if you are a graduate of the college, you have access to all these networks. And even if you're not religious yourself, you're probably not entirely religious, let's say. It makes sense even from a capitalist point of view. The great lesson to be learned from the covenant is how you can have a completely non-capitalist objective, but you can be very successful by also serving the capitalist objectives. Why is this important? This is important because we in the world, in planet Earth, are engaged in a transition to post-climate change world. We need a green transition. The transition means finding economic models that are, will be different, but will be working even in the common, in the current economic model. If you don't have that, all these new models will die before they can develop. You described the triad, which is manufacturing, with the Benedictine core and capitalists exploding the innovation, it reminds me also the idea of districts. I mean, like district, like industrial districts, where you have innovation which is fostered. So you have a group of people, like not only Silicon Valley, that everyone would say Silicon Valley, of course, but also other places. For example, in Italy, we have a lot of districts which have tradition of high-level manufacturing in textile or, or like Flanders would have been in the Middle Ages as well, where you have some sort of innovation and it's poles and then people come and, and get knowledge and also the proximity is somehow helping this. And then you have the financial innovation with the other aspect and then you have the education. It's very interesting because you basically laid out three aspects of economy which are completely important. You have manufacturing which is real economy, you have finance which is completely transformed into something virtual and then you have education that somehow should link everything because you need the human resources. So from that point of view it's a very interesting model because it's complete and this dual system that you pointed out what comes to my mind it's also what's happening on planet Earth already now perhaps not necessarily for the best of the intentions, but you mentioned Shenzhen, a dual system, and the dual system that exists in, in reality. Of course, I cannot not think about China and how it's successful in the world economy by participating in the global markets and global value chains, but at the same time being very protective of their own system and not dilute their own system into the rest of the global system. And it's, I think, a fascinating question besides saying if it works with China and if it works successfully 
successfully in a model like the Benedictine, it works successfully into a simulation, because in the end of the day, what you do with the science fiction is a sort of simulation. Why shouldn't it work for other reasons, for other purposes, which could be fighting climate change, right? Yes, correct. So you can imagine a world in which the monks have taken this mission to heart. Climate is part of God's works. Disrupting it as we are doing is a sin. So we are going to kind of cleanse it by fighting it. And we are going to fight it by inventing things that will help this. We don't really care about profitability. We don't care about how long it will take. If it takes 1,500 years, so be it. We've been around. We'll be around for a long time. We continue. And then you can use the capitalist system around it as, a, as an accelerator. So these guys will not lead because leading in this kind of mission is too risky and the rewards are too long term. But maybe they will follow after somebody's made the breakthrough then they can say, ah, I can make that maybe cheaper, maybe a cheaper material or whatever and make it more accessible, which will also accelerate the mission of fighting climate change. I think, Alberto, on this note, what I would like to invite our listeners to join this exercise again, having said what we have said about the COVID and there might be many other things to say that people involved so far in witness they haven't write yet about the covenant so if you got curious and interested in developing even further this district of witness you can find in the show notes the links to the witness wiki where you can join the community this incredible experiment of co-creation and write your own part on it Is there any other thing about the Covenant that you would like to add before we leave the episode? Yes, there is one thing which is a little bit of my pet project. I already mentioned the, the Validitas sub-district of the Covenant. It's within the Covenant, but it has its own specificity, and it is the one that is building the sublight spaceship. That's called Validitas because the monks there are in order that has merged Christian religion and modern biology. And that builds on the work of a historical theologian called Pierre Taylor de Chardin, who believed that evolution was, in a sense, the voice of God. This constant self-organization of matter in more and more sophisticated forms. The Big Bang, then the stars, then the planets, then the crystals, then the bacteria, then the unicellular animals. You go all the way up to civilizations. It is kind of interesting to see how this thinking on the complexity studies in the 90s and 2000s has in a way flirted with religion. So that is kind of an interesting place where we could be looking at the deep philosophical and economic implication of modern biological thinking. Let's invite everybody to come in and help. We need everything. We need financial economists. We need industrial economists. We need sociologists, historians, media experts, ecologists, you name it. We are building a world here. And theologists at this Stage. Theologians would be good, absolutely. It would be fantastic if some people from the clergy would like to get involved. We have a lot of time to waste in this kind of sinful activities that don't really lead anywhere, like science fiction, they have less time. And it will add a diversity into the conversation. This brings us to the end of this conversation today. Thank you so much, Alberto. I would like to remind our listeners as well that they can find the link to the membership page of Are We Europe to become part of the most unconventional club out there and help build a new media for a changing continent. Thanks so much. I'm happy to continue to share this journey together with Alberto through the different witness districts for the next episode. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye. 
This podcast was brought to you by Are We Europe, a border-breaking media trying to bridge the gaps in European culture and identity. You can become an Are We Europe member and connect with storytellers across the continent starting at 4 euros per month. Just go to areweeurope.com slash member and help Are We Europe build a new media for a changing continent.